Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. I had a conversation with a journalist who's covered the planet, including the latest tragedy out of Uvalde, Texas. It's all ahead on Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Vincent Jason, Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey everybody, welcome back to Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. I'm Dr. Jason Nichols. That there is my good buddy, Vince Colonnese. And we have a lot of things to talk about. Of course, we know so many things are going on in the world, and there is somebody who's been following it all. Vince, who do we have with us today? Oh, well, joining us today is an anchor and national correspondent for the cable channel News Nation uh, in the United States. He's covered events across the planet as a journalist from Jerusalem to the Arab Spring to right here in the United States, uh, including being in Uvalde, Texas this past week as our friend Leland Vitter, who joins us on Vincent Jason Save the Nation after inviting himself to do this very thing. Thank you very much <laughs> for doing that, Leland. Um, my, my, my pleasure. And now that the tables are turned, uh, two of my favorite guests uh, get to, get to put, be the host, and I am uh, the victim here. Uh, I was going to wear a flak jacket uh, for protection uh, for back in days of war correspondence, but instead I just brought my, uh, my black lab here, Dutch. Uh, who's available uh, as needed for for protection? He's oh, Dutch doing a great job. Dutch here. is already uh, making things better uh, on the yes, on the interview. Thank right. you. He's hey, not uh, playing fair there. He's trying no. to get sympathy, so yep. he pulls out hey, his dog. Hey, oh, yep. come on, bro. <laughs> hey, hey, Leland, can you walk me through? You know, you're at News Nation now. A lot of people will remember you for years at Fox News. Yeah. Um, News Nation until how recently was known as WGN America, right? Based out of Chicago. Right. About about uh, 10 or 12, uh, what, probably 18 months ago is when they made the switch to, to be News Nation. And we're the old uh, still have a lot of syndicated cable uh, as we grow out to be 24 hours. So uh, we're owned by Nexstar, which has 200 local stations around the country, uh, 4000 journalists, which gives us this sort of enormous footprint across America uh, to, to draw on uh, for local stories and local knowledge. Uh, yeah. To then to then put on this this different kind of of cable news that is less based in partisan opinion and more based uh, in fact and in uh, in reporting the news as it is the news and then letting people form their own ideas about it. Right. So, you know, when I, if I flip to the channel like on the daytime, I'll see some like you know classic like syndicated. Yeah, Tom, Tom Selleck and blue and blue bloods yeah. <laughs> soon soon Walker, over the next Texas couple Ranger. of. Hey, you know, uh, <laughs> we, we probably needed Walker, Texas Ranger last last week, didn't we? Oh, um, but I'm thinking uh, over the next uh, probably year or so, we're going to be fully uh, fully staffed throughout uh, the the 18 hours of yeah. you know 5 a.m. to about midnight. And so the vision for the channel is to be a more fact based uh, cable news provider rather than an opinionator. Is that the, is that the idea? Kind of like distinguishing yourself from. Uh, MSNBC, Fox News, and certainly CNN, although I'd imagine there's some on staff at CNN who would resent that we refer to them that way, but that's just the reality. They, they As right. Jason Nichols has laid out many times, they kind of became an anti-Trump network uh, rather than a straight news network. You see a space there in the market for that? Well, sure. If, if you just think, if you just think about the marketplace, right, um, you know, you've got, you've got OAN, 
um, and Newsmax over here, you've got Fox, and then you've got CNN and MSNBC over here. And there, there's a big white space of America. And I think it's important that, you know, unbi unbiased doesn't really exist, right? Because we're all biased. We all bring our opinions. It's not, bias isn't having an opinion. It's the exclusion of an opinion. And I think if you if you watch CNN or MSNBC, and, I, and journalists make lousy media critics, so I, 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 this is probably not <laughs> my, my safe space, but they tend to exclude a certain set of opinions. And Fox does as well. There's a, there's a real exclusion. We don't. Uh, but I think you guys both agree on this, having having been guests on the show, that that both sides get a really hard time and get critically examined on the program. And so it's not boring in that we just tell you, oh, here's what President Biden says. Here's what President Biden says. And, and here's the serious questions about it. And by the way, here's what Republicans are saying about uh, you know, gun control and about background checks, or here's what the NRA is saying, and we're going to ask some really serious and tough questions about that as well. I, th I think you both. I think you both can attest to to getting a hard time. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly can. But I, I can say that, like, one of the things that I've always uh, liked about you and about your show is that um, it reminds me of what really got me interested in news when I was a kid, and that was Tim Russert. And one of the things I liked about Tim Russert was that he was tough on everybody. He went right. after everybody and he went after everybody's, you know, argument and issues. It didn't matter if you were Republican or you were Democrat. Sometimes he would bring Republicans and Democrats on and he would press both of them at the exact same time. And I, I think that I, I find that at your show, uh, you know, more than I've seen in other places where, even if you have two guests, you'll have, you know, Vince Colonnese on one side and Jason Nichols on the other. You know, usually if we're on Fox, you know, the person's kind of cozying up to Vince and then, you know, kind of taking it, you know, losing, but taking it to me, trying to anyway. <laughs> and, and, and in an Well, fellas, I want to say this has been a great interview. I appreciate all the kind words. Uh, Dutch has to go out for a walk right now. That's right. <laughs> but I, I do want to ask you about... Um, some of what you're seeing down there in Texas yeah. or what you've seen in Uvalde um, and just kind of what your reaction is having been down there on the ground. Have you gotten an opportunity to talk to some of the parents and even yeah. some of the Uvalde PD, which we, we really, you know, now they're not even talking to the Texas uh, Department of Public Safety. So I'm wondering if you got an opportunity to talk to any of the police as well as the parents down there. So, uh, yes, and sort of uh, talked to a number of the parents, including the parents of some of the people who died, including one father, um, Javier Cesara, I, I don't think I'll ever forget him, who was among the parents uh, in front of the school begging the police to do more. It turns out at that very time, his daughter was bleeding out inside uh, that that classroom. So, yes. Um, and then I also uh, got a chance to talk to some, to some of the police officers. You rightly point out, Jason, that uh, the head of the Uvalde School District Police Department that made the decision to, to wait and to stand outside the classroom, he won't even talk to the Texas Rangers who are right now investigating this. And that, that says an awful lot. Um, it, it perhaps leads people to believe that he intentionally uh, maybe misled them or, or said things that were not 100% factual, because now if he's not willing to talk, it, it kind of changes the dynamic. The, the, the takeaway I had is that anytime you cover a school shooting or the death of children, it's profoundly sad. Anytime you e interview uh, 
parents of, of dead children, which people in local news have done all too often, um, it's, it's really terrible. What was different here is that everything in that school was the way it was what we were told would prevent school shootings. They had locked doors that automatically locked. They had uh, active shooter training. They had the SWAT team in. They had visitor logs. They had uh, social media monitoring. They had uh, one way in and one way out. They had all of these things, and yet the shooting still happened. And the police who were supposed to be trained as the last resort failed. And they failed in their training, which tells you that if your kid is at school anywhere in America that has all those things and has done all the right things, they may not be safe either. Yeah, there was a spectacular array of failures, and we still don't actually have all the details because even today, the story seems to be changing. Uh, The San Antonio papers are now reporting that uh, that the door was not actually uh, held open by a rock at the time that the shooter entered the building. The teacher had supposedly kicked the rock out and had slammed the door shut. There's video of this now. I, and it's, I, you know, I know, uh, Leland, you've covered a lot of chaotic events around the globe, and certainly the early reports have a, a, a very high tendency of being wrong. But have you ever seen this many official statements that are direct contradictions of the events over the course of just a week's time? Probably not. I've also, in in in, in fairness uh, to the Texas Department of Public Safety, who I think has done an extraordinary job at trying to be transparent. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the media wants it both ways. They want all the information right now, and then they demand that it be perfect. And the fog of war is real. Um, you know, you ask twenty cops, or, or you ask twenty eyewitnesses to an event what happened, you will get twenty five different stories. And over that week, over the next week, you'll get different stories from them as they remember things and see things differently. So the concept uh, of getting it, uh, you know, what did did someone put the rock in the door and then they kicked the rock out and then the door closed but didn't latch versus it the rock was still in and therefore it, it didn't close all the way. I don't know how you discern that on videotape. You're talking about a couple of millimeters in a, in a door latch. So... No, I've never seen anything be so wrong, but I, in fairness, I've never seen an attempt by law enforcement to be as transparent as they were. And I was at the press conferences on Thursday and Friday, and obviously on Friday, where the, the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety came out and said all the things that had been done wrong and really took it on the chin from the media. And he stood there and he took every question. And I had to really, you got to really hand it to them. Uh, it wasn't DPS's fault wasn't his fault. He wasn't the one who made the decision not to go uh, into that classroom. But he stood there and told the truth. So can you, knew can, can, I don't think people realize, and, I, and I'm not sure I even real, like understand all of the divisions here between the local police forces, because it sounds to me like the guy who was in charge, the incident commander at the school, was in charge of the school police uh, in Uvalde, that he was the head of the, the police, the chief of police for the school police, and that that amounts to what a, a division of about six people or something, and correct. And to what extent does that person have the right amount of tactical experience to lead that incident? And should someone else have been leading it? I, I just can you kind of explain the divisions here. So you have the Uvalde Police Department, uh, which has a couple of dozen officers. 
then you town of 16,000 people. Then you've got the Uvalde School District Police, which is Pete Ariando, Ariando, who is, uh, we call him Police Chief Pete, uh, who clearly is the one who made these sort of tragic mistakes. And you make a great point. He had the active shooter training. He just didn't follow his training. Um, should someone else have taken over? Yeah. Was there anybody else within 30 minutes drive of Uvalde, Texas, which is a town of 16,000 people, two hours from nowhere, that has that experience? Probably not. But doesn't um, Uvalde have a, a SWAT team? I thought there was yeah, like a big social media post of them with a SWAT team, like bragging they, about they, it. They, they, they did, and they went through active shooter training. I think what we probably are learning in this situation is that as badly as we want everything to be perfect, it sometimes isn't. And I, I don't know this, but yeah. you know the, the, the clock starts with the 911 call, uh, the shooter at the school. Um, you know, the call goes out. Maybe the SWAT commander, it was his day off and he was fishing with his kids somewhere else. Maybe, you know, there's all these, it, it's never when one thing goes wrong, but multiple. And the, the person who became the incident commander at that point was this police chief. Now, did, did we understand, we don't have this confirmed, but it's been widely reported that the border patrol tactical team that, that arrived, that was off duty and just showed up to help, they actually ended up sort of overriding the police chief and just saying, we're going in Yeah, uh, and right. ran to the sound of gunfire. It's very clear he made horrific mistakes and that's just the way it is. Uh, but I, I, again, we could always say in hindsight, oh, this should have happened and that should have happened, this should have happened. But during the fog of war, I think it, it, it is a real thing that you got to take into account. I understand the fog of war, but 78 minutes of fog sounds like a lot. You know what I mean? I, I understand like, okay, we need to, you know, maybe take a second to figure out the lay of the land here. Sure. I, I don't understand. And, and I'm not sure that you, you're going to be able to help me with this, particularly when you have a SWAT team that is trained to do these things. And, and, you know, I've, I've heard people, you know, there's so many people who have, who have made comments, even me, um, about, you know, SWAT. And I, I've always said that, you know, having, you know, people who want to demilitarize police. Um, I've always said, hey, if there's an active shooter, I want there to be, you know, a unit that is ready for that. Now, what the way SWAT oftentimes gets deployed is because somebody has three ounces of weed in their house and, and a couple hundred bucks and maybe a pistol. And then SWAT comes and kicks in their door. Well, I, I would like it for these situations. And why SWAT wasn't deployed when they're trained for this, I don't care who's in charge. Why wouldn't you say, okay, SWAT commander, you go and, and do what you have to do in order to save lives. So, I, I, I'm, I'm just lost on how you go from, first it was, you know, it was 12 minutes. Then it was, you know, I think it was yeah. an hour. And now, and now it's 78 minutes. Like, I don't, I'm not understanding that. Right, right. And the other the other component here is I d we haven't gotten clear answers on why the little girl's messages from inside the classroom didn't seem to have an effect on the judgment of the police chief to change it back to an active shooter situation. So I don't. Yeah, you, no, you, you guys are making you guys are making phenomenal points. That's the problem, right, is that these don't have good answers. And the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety was very clear. Active shooter situation. Uh, the first officer who arrives, you go to the sound of gunfire and you keep shooting 
yeah. until that gunfire is neutralized. Um, and the second guy does the same thing. And if they're barricaded, uh, you you stack up outside the door and you go in. That's what you're paid to do. Um, and that's what you're sworn to do. I think the only thing I can say in, in having been in combat um, overseas fairly extensively, the first time that you're in combat, which likely for the Uvalde police chief, this was the first time he was ever really in combat and really shot at, your whole world changes. Your ears start ringing. Your vision starts closing. You lose you lose your judgment. Um, time compresses and expands. None of these are excuses. It's just reality of, of war. And that, you know, you can be told there's kids back that door and he says, I can't send officers in when it's a bit, you know, once somebody's made that decision, it takes people who have had the experience and who've, who've gone through it a billion times. It's why Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 and FBI hostage rescue team train and get shot at hundreds of hours a month to desensitize them. And the school police chief in Uvalde, Texas just wasn't. Yeah, right. yeah. So, I just, uh, let's go ahead, Jason. Yeah, and I, I just have a question about uh, kind of the politics of this. And if you noticed this when you were down there, um, of course, we know that uh, a lot of the media is upset with the NRA holding their, their conference uh, a few hundred miles away in, uh, in Houston. It was in Houston, correct? Correct. Um, yeah, so um, Uvalde is a, or it seems like it's a, a rural kind of community, not far from the border, you know, um, and you would think that there would be a lot of gun owners in that community. How did they feel about how the issue is being framed? People that, you know, I've, I've seen interviews with the kids where the kids are saying, I'm scared of guns now. I'm, you know, I'm having nightmares, all those kinds of things that you would expect from a child. But I would expect that a lot of these parents are actually gun owners and pro-gun themselves in a community like Uvalde, Texas. How are they, uh, you know, have they actually made any comments about the politics of this issue beyond policing? It's a great question. Um, Javier Cesares, uh, the father who lost his daughter, Jacqueline, uh, is, a, is a concealed carrying, gun-toting American. His, his son is in the U.S. Marines. And I had to ask him, I said, what was it like uh, getting the call about your daughter and not about your son? Because that's what you always would have thought was going to happen. So he said, my view on guns has changed a little bit that someone who's that young shouldn't be able to buy AR-15s. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very dangerous in cases like this to, to paint anything with broad strokes right. and say, this is what this community thinks because there is, is diverse in opinion is uh, people who live in Chicago or people who live outside of Washington, D.C. or near Baltimore where you are, Jason. So I think that's a, a broad stroke issue. When it comes to generally speaking, um, I, I didn't see a huge sea change of, well, now guns are bad. I think, I, Vince, you know, you made some interesting points about the NRA convention as well um, in, term, in terms of whether it was had. I didn't see a lot of anger by parents about guns. I saw a lot of anger about the police and I saw a lot of anger uh, about the shooter, but specifically about the guns. I didn't, I didn't in, encounter that. You know, one of the problems I have um, in the wake of a shooting like this is one, how routine it's become in terms of like how these these debates play out. 
uh, it's all, it's weird. It's just like, it's all muscle memory now. Like I can, I can, I can tell you why some of these arguments are failures, why, you know, people are exploiting it politically and they're misdirecting people. And it's unfortunate that it has become routine enough that mm. it's, that it's easy to know. Like, I don't have to look it up, you know? Um, but one of the realities of this, and you kind of tapped into it at the top of our conversation about the need in the media not to exclude perspectives and context, uh, which too often is done in the press. Like, if you take a perspective, if you pull back on what's actually going on in America right now, as I did with you the other day, Leland, as we talked about this while you were reporting from Uvalde, one, I think that there's a massive cultural rot going on that does undergird some of this that uh, we need to address because you're watching that as all of the indicators of despair have grown in the United States uh, and have not abated. And as a result, you say, okay, is there some underlying cause to this? And there could be any number, I mean, including a collapsing economic potential. The, you know, the, the fact is that the lower and middle classes don't have the same opportunities and will not make the same income as their parents did. Uh, you've got more broken families of all demographics. That's, that's just true. The commonality between all of these mass shooters in particular is either the estranged or broken relationships that they have with their fathers. Uh, and also the role that the internet plays in all of this, the radicalization that the internet has um, led to among many of these shooters is self-professed. They include it in their, uh, in their uh, manifestos in the case of the Buffalo shooter uh, or in their social media postings through the animal torture you see out of the Uvalde shooter. So there is, there is, there, there's like, there's something deep and, and meaningful going on there, I think, that needs to be addressed. And finally, and just in, by way of context, if we think about shootings in the United States, the extent to which homicides occur uh, using a gun as the implement of homicide, there is a very narrow focus on this particular type of shooting for pretty obvious reasons, I think, given how much it pulls at the heartstrings of every news consumer who sees this, like, oh my God, children especially uh, being killed. But there's a there's a vast... Um, uh, ignorance of the rest of the, sh the, the shooting homicides that are going on in the United States, because the media has made one of two decisions. One, it's so common in places like Chicago that they don't cover it. It's, it's just like, it's, it's not unusual. It's not novel. So the media doesn't really pay it much heed uh, or they don't care. They, or there's a political bent to that judgment, which is like, Hey, you know, Democrats run these cities. We're kind of sympathetic to them. They're trying their best. Let's not focus on it too much. Um, but there are, in other words, like a lot of these debates are devoid of context. And I don't think the average American realizes just how devoid of context they are. Agreed on all fronts. Uh, I would give you the reason for it. And I think it's that it's very simple, which is that it allows for a very concise narrative that fits into the generic political debate. And I'll give because uh, I think I have to, for, for the school shootings, it's very easy to put it into, it's the gun's fault, gives great weight for Democratic senators and great political leverage to say, we need gun control. We need to ban assault rifles. If we ban the sale of assault rifles, there will be no more school shootings. In the same way, um, and that is that argument plays out on CNN, MSNBC, MSNBC in the same way, um, it's equally difficult to challenge, to tackle the big city crime issues uh, in uh, Chicago. So Fox, Fox doesn't really cover the big city crime, the, the shootings in Uvalde in the way that MSNBC and CNN does, because it plays well into that narrative. And then CNN and MSNBC don't really cover 
uh, the 50 people who were shot in Chicago this weekend or the way more than 19 kids who have died in Chicago from gunfire since the first of the year. Well, because it doesn't play into their political narrative and you can watch Fox and Fox's political narrative is, oh, well, it's woke DAs letting people out on the street uh, who should be locked up. And if only we would lock up all the gangbangers, then there would be no more shootings in Chicago. And that ain't any, that ain't true, nor is if we banned AR-15s, would there be no more school shootings? But uh, in in cable news, it's it's much easier to have the black and white argument uh, than it is to have the thousand Literally. shades of gray argument. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I think you, you make some really good points there. And, and I agree with, with everything you said. I agree with some of what Vince was saying as well, not all of it. But I definitely agree that um, I think where the three of us agree is that it's not the gun. And, I, and I've made that argument several times. And, and I think, you know, you can talk about some gun controls. I think that there need to be some gun controls. And I think that's where most Americans fall. Um, and again, I, I also think that your city, Leland, Chicago is, uh, is used by the right all the time. You know, when, when you look at the homicide rates per capita, Chicago isn't in the top 10. It's not even in the top 20. I looked it up. It was, it was 28 San Bernardino, California, Fresno. A lot of these Republican cities are, are just as high up. This is a cultural issue. I think one of the things that Vince was saying is correct, that we do have some cultural issues. And I think when you have those issues, which uh, fixing those issues is not a small task. It's not something you're going to you're going to accomplish, you know, with a piece of legislation uh, and accomplish it tomorrow. Um, but one thing we can try and do is keep uh, as few guns out of the hands of people who are having these issues. And, you know, the, the father thing, I, I would recommend there's a book called The Hate You Give that talks about the radicalization of young men. A lot of them, by the way, in terms of Vince's argument about uh, economics, even with um, Islamic terrorists, Muslim terrorists and all that, the young men that, that go and strap on vests and all that, a lot of them are not the most economically disadvantaged. They're not the people who don't have uh, fathers in their homes. A lot of times with those, these radicalized kids, it's, it's the, the, the second part of what he was saying, which is not being a part of something, feeling mm -hmm. kind of lost, you know? Um, and so I would recommend that book to anybody who has questions about that. I'm somebody who studies masculinity and, and, you know, it, it's not these kind of easy narratives when we're trying to pick one of those people out. But one of the things we can do is when someone's killing cats on, on the internet is try to keep them from being able to got, buy a gun or try to keep them at least if they have guns to go through an adjudication process where maybe his grandmother who he lived with and his grandfather. So he did have a male figure in the home. Maybe his grandmother could say before he shot her in the face, hey, you know, he's doing some strange things. Maybe we should take his guns away. You know, so I think that the, and this is where most Americans fall, even even members of the NRA, you know, want universal background checks and want, you know, and I think the, the limitations on a magazine, not necessarily taking the gun away. We don't need to take away the AR-15, but you shouldn't be able to, to connect, you know, a, a, an extended clip that that can take out 75 people at once. So 
I think, you know, there are sensible things that we can do. And there's the long-term issue that I think Vince was bringing up. The, uh, you guys both make great points. I, I would, I would refine it down to um, in the end, the, the real solutions always come down to the people because evil people will find ways to do evil things in the same way the war on drugs for 40 years did not prevent people from doing drugs. Um, you're not going to prevent bad people from getting, getting weapons. Uh, the, the real issue, and it's uncomfortable for both sides. If you want to deal with the poverty and the, the lawlessness um, that exists in Chicago that then lead to so much of this gang violence and the like, you've got to deal with the really bad structural issues of, of racism in Chicago and that the history of, of Chicago and, and kids uh, being able to get out. You, it, that's uncomfortable for, for the right and for Fox News. And you've got to also deal with the uh, implied victimhood that's allowed and the broken families and the lack of father figures in the homes uh, in the South side of Chicago, which is uncomfortable for CNN and MSNBC to deal with. Both of these have to be dealt with in order to fix the core problem. But uh, to, to sort of circle back to where we started, uh, if, if one side is allowed to have the conversation in a vacuum and the other side is allowed to have the conversation in a vacuum, then, then no one's having the real conversation that is gonna actually fix these problems. So we have to sort of decide, you know, Vince, to your point, how many more school shootings, how many more weekends of 50 people getting shot in Chicago are we as a society willing to accept for the privilege of all being able to sit in our respective happy place on our respective cable news channel watching and going, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I just, so, and my, my goal is to widen the lens to include things like how many more suicides are we going to accept? How many sure, more, or, or, how or many more or, opioid or, or, deaths yep. are we going to expect? Yep. Are we going to uh, accept? Like I, I just think that myopia on this issue, allowing yourself to to simply view it through the lens of one school shooting, which again is horrific, it 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 arrests, it robs you of the ability to think clearly about the bigger picture, which is we have a society that is in decline on a bunch of really meaningful metrics, and we seem to be sleepwalking our way through it. And um, and uh, if we're going to take it seriously, we need to have some sort of like cultural renaissance that's that that, you know, brings us back to reality and re reassess and helps us reassess what's actually important to us. In our I'll, lives. I'll give you one. I'll give you one thought, which is if you uh, you and I, all three of us, I think, are great admirers of uh, Mike Allen over at Axios and the work that they do. Um, and they had a, a really interesting graph about the amount of Google searches as it related to various issues of the day. Um, and a few years ago, everyone was talking about, uh, you know, the bathroom wars and uh, gay rights and uh, CRT and all of these other issues. Today, abortion and so many of the cultural issues are now 14, 15th and 16th. Gas prices, food prices, food, you know, uh, food pantries, all of the pocketbook issues, inflation. What is inflation? How do we stop inflation are all now at the very top of everybody's mind. And you kind of have to wonder if, if as bad as the economic situation is right now, if it gets worse, does that require us to come together in the Renaissance, Vince, that you talk about? Because we don't really have a choice anymore. Worrying about all the social issues um, and kind of the dog whistle yes. uh, cultural arguments is a luxury. And pretty soon we may not, we may not as a country have yeah. that luxury anymore. Yes. I've always I always think about like like when uh, like things like the Hong Kong democracy movement is going on. 
like send a, an American reporter in there and ask them what they think about the transgender bathroom debate and see what kind of answer you yeah. get. I mean, yeah. it's just like, it, it'd just be like, it'd be like, what the hell are you even talking about? Right. Like, we've got something completely existential on our hands uh, and, and about the about the future of uh, democracy, specifically in Hong Kong. But but yeah, you're right. It does bring it does have this like clarifying thing like, wait a second, our sort of narcissistic like um, decadent culture needs to fall by the wayside in order to focus on the things that really matter. And again, I mean, we we can body slam uh, cable news all day. I think Vince and I would be with you on that, um, particularly the the powerful stations that are out there. And well, we, when, we only ever punch up, never punch down, right, always punch right, up. Right, <laughs> you know, I, I, I definitely um, agree. And this is something Vince and I discussed when we were talking about Leah Thomas, you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, on the left were coming down on me for not doing more to support Leah Thomas's swimming. And I'm like, an amateur swim meet is the last thing on my mind. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, hey, could she swim? Cool. You know, I'm, I'm not opposed, but that's not something that I'm going to advocate for. If we're going to talk about transgender kids, I'm going to advocate for the fact that so many of them are homeless that so many of them, you know, end up getting sexually assaulted, that, you know, uh, those issues that actually affect them and are actually life and death that we can fix, rather than who wins a swim meet, you know, I don't even go to my kids swim meets. No, I, I do. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not interested who wins. If, if a trans kid comes around and beats my daughter in a swim meet, I think I'd be like, you know, it is what it is. You know what Come I mean? On. This is not Come something on. I'd be concerned about. Honestly, I, I don't care who wins. Did you swim your hardest? Great. You know, uh, there's no money on the line and there's no money on the line in some of these other situations either. But there are bigger issues in the world and the kitchen table issues that you were bringing up, um, I think, are, are the ones that are really important. And I think you and Vince are both correct that it's a luxury to talk about amateur swim meets. As, yeah. as top news. My, my, my point, I don't want to undersell my own, my own uh, talking points on this subject. I hate using the phrase talking points. My own thoughts on this subject, which are like, I do think it's important to push back on that cultural war stuff. I do think that there's value in that. Well, all I'm saying is that uh, like cultures that ha are dealing with existential threats right now, countries that are dealing with that, are, are not even able to engage in the kind of decadent thinking that would lead them to be like, oh, we need to allow men to identify as women to use this bathroom. Like that, that is just, ir that's irrelevant to their life because, um, because they have something really meaningful in front of them about the future of their country. And so Leland, to your point, I, I, I do think that there is like all of a sudden, and I don't know why I'm actually angry about this, not from a, not on a partisan basis, just like as an American, the White House, there's all this like there's a flurry of coverage at the beginning of this week from the Washington Post just published overnight. That the White House is starting to panic about inflation and that uh, and that Biden is angry that he hasn't gotten more support from his staff to confront inflation. And that's infuriating because this is not a new this is not a new emergency. It's been going on like for the duration of his administration. And so and then like for the NBC piece that just came out yesterday where it said Biden was angry at his staff for not telling him about the the formula shortage until it was too late. It's just like, what the hell is going on? Because this stuff really matters. There's no question. And when you, when you think about the problems that are on the front page of the paper right now, uh, 
none of them are problems that we as Americans have ever had to deal with in our lifetime. Food shortage in America of any kind of food? There was just something that, that a year ago wasn't even a, a thought that existed, baby for, that you couldn't get baby formula. There's nine Walgreens nearby. Go to any of them. There's, the, store, the shelves are stocked. That was something we didn't deal with. Uh, I remember in, when I was in Egypt during the 2010, uh, 2011 Arab Spring, you know, the price of gas was causing revolution. What? Something we've never dealt with in America. Yeah, gas price goes up, goes down, whatever. But the idea that that was going to become some kind of really huge issue in America, we didn't even consider that. Uh, now you're talking about food shortages with grain or with corn or, or wheat going forward. Uh, talking about uh, food prices in, in, in ways that we can't deal with. Housing prices, interest rates out of control. Uh, these are things that we as Americans have never had to deal with, at least in our lifetime. And I don't know about you, Vince, but I, I, or Jason, I've been talking to my parents uh, and they're, they're starting to tell all these stories about what it was like in, in the 70s and into the 80s mm -hmm. dealing with shortages and high gas prices. It's like, wow, that, sound, that sounds really bad. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, you know, this, this is new territory for some communities. There are some communities that, you know, and you're in the Midwest. Uh, if, if you talk to the people in Flint, Michigan, they've been dealing with, with shortages of all kinds and, and shortage of, of probably the, the most important resource we have, which is water. You know what I mean? Kids weren't able to take a shower before they go to school or able to brush their teeth or drink water. Um, so I think that there are some communities and pockets of America um, and, and in, even in Detroit where they they didn't have an issue with the quality of the water, but companies were turning the water off for people not sell, paying their bill. You know, so you had people who really literally had no access to water in their homes. I think that there are a lot of these issues that have existed in pockets, but what we're seeing is that middle-class people are, are having to face some of these issues. And that's when it hits the front of the paper, or that's when people start yeah. really getting concerned is when, oh, I can't feed my middle, you know, my baby and I, you know, and I make, you know, 80 grand and my wife makes 120 grand and, and we can't feed our baby. Um, and I think there's, you know, some of these things, you know, in terms of inflation, I think that the White House knew it was an issue. The thing was that it was the, you know, within the purview of the, uh, the Fed to kind of deal with this, you know, in terms of, of interest rates. And it just hasn't, you know, really shaken out the way. I mean, we've seen the rate in, at which it was rising go down, you know, it's not rising quite as fast as it once was, but it's, you know, it's still a, a, a an issue that now is going to have political consequences and the Fed isn't able to fix it on its own. So, and, and inflation, again, we have to remember these are global issues. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, all, all, all good, all good points, at least from my reporting and, and the time I've spent in, in various communities, you said, what's it like in Uvalde? But, you know, we spend, I travel the country reporting on this stuff. Mm. No one really cares about the Fed. No one really cares about right. global inflation and food supply here or whatever there, or, or the rate at which inflation rises. They care about how much gas costs. Right. They care about how much their grocery bill is. So and you hear the president, and I think Vince mentioned this NBC News report, that, that he's really angry that he's not getting enough credit for the low unemployment rate. It, the economy isn't a set of numbers. 
Right. It's how you feel. And in the same way, the Virginia election uh, that you guys and I talked about a lot in, uh, last November when Glenn Youngkin won, it wasn't about education, although that was the number one issue uh, that people uh, talked about in exit polling. Education became a proxy. Uh, the economy has become a proxy for rising prices and empty shelves in America. And like it or not, a presidency is not defined by the things that people want it to be defined by. President Biden thought he was going to come in. You already had vaccines coming online. You were going to end the corona. You were going to end the COVID pandemic. Uh, you were going to have this economic renaissance. He was going to bring civility back. He was going to spend most of his weekends uh, in Delaware. There was always going to be a press briefing. There were going to be no more mean tweets. And there you go. He was going to do one term and ride off into the sunset as this sort of successful caretaker who who brought the American presidency back. That was his plan. Yeah. And we know that because he told us that. Yeah, but no, the person who the person who I, who occupies the White House doesn't get to choose what defines their presidency. And Vince, I think right. you made a very convincing point uh, that the president now is realizing that that he doesn't get to choose, and you actually have to lead. And the the country's problems become your problems. And when you when you occupied sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue, it kind of doesn't matter what the problem in America is. Yeah. It's, it may not be your fault, but by God, it's your responsibility. Right. One of the Absolutely. other things that stands out in that NBC report is that Biden is angry that the White House keeps changing the intent of his statements. That when he says <laughs> things in public, yeah. they'll release something to clean it up. And he's mad that he says he's look, I'm I'm, I'm got here because I'm plain spoken and I mean what I say. Uh, and yet the White House is is changing the public statements in order to mean something else. The big example is when he said that Vladimir Putin can't stay in power and the White House had to release a statement showing, saying he's not changing policy, he's not calling for regime change. Um, and Biden was apparently angry about that. And so this is- Well, and by the way, I don't want to cut you off, but remember how the White House comm shop dealt with that story about Biden being angry about being undercut? Is they undercut him again by saying we only undercut him when he tells us to. Yes, that's right. They they explained <laughs> that he approves all of us under whenever we undercut him. Uh, it's it's amazing. So here's the thing that sticks out to me though, and this is I think a bipartisan point, which is it's become, it's very interesting that especially over the last two presidencies, how on display the power of the bureaucrats underneath the president is. So. In Trump's case, you had people like, you know, Miles Taylor writing op-eds in the New York Times under the anonymous pseudonym saying that you've got a range of Trump officials who are actively subverting the president because we have to do this in the interest of democracy. We have to save the country. Uh, you had you had officials who uh, were keeping from Trump the troop levels in various countries around the planet from the Pentagon. Uh, and it was on and on and on, right? We kept getting these stories and the press kept framing them as like noble exercises of the defense of our democracy. But of course, they're undermining the duly elected leader of the of the of the country. Meanwhile, in Biden's case, you're seeing a similar phenomenon. It's not being portrayed by the press the same way. But Biden himself, his word is not good enough. It's it's whatever the people underneath him need to come out and explain, including if it's the polar opposite of what he just said in public. And I think there's kind of something very subversive and anti-democratic about that, because in the, in the end, only Biden is actually responsive to the voters. The voters get to decide who's in the White House. And yet the people around Biden are constantly changing the meaning of his statements. Uh, and I, I think this is a it's a dangerous trend. And I think that people should be uh, attuned to it. Leland. Uh, it, it is a fantastic, fantastic point. And I think you just perhaps 
solidified for me what the lead of the show is this evening, um, which which is that. And I, I had not made the connection uh, of of the bureaucrats uh, controlling the president in a way that we didn't really understand. And and maybe in a way that that's not so much the bureaucrats fault as it is the president's fault, uh, yeah. because he is the commander in chief uh, and, and and he is responsible for who reports to him. And and boy, doesn't the press love it? The press loves nothing more than a good leaky White House. Uh, they loved it with Trump. They couldn't wait for the the narrative that there were people protecting democracy from Trump, which MSNBC and CNN just absolutely ate up and loved. Um, and at the same time, Fox can't wait to push the narrative that Biden is out of touch and unincharged, and it's really the the mysterious bureaucrats and Ron Klain who's undercutting him and then are mad that and he's mad that he's being undercut. So it, it, it is a product of the media, but the goes back to it. It's the fault of the commander in chief. If you, if you want that yeah. job, yeah. You, you, you've got to be able to, to manage and to, and to run it. I think, I think perhaps we're seeing, and I think George W. Bush rightly pointed out that no one, um, you know, that history really is written 20 years later and who knows how we're going to view any one president, but say what you want. You didn't have this kind of stuff either during his time in office and you certainly didn't have it in Obama's time of office. They just didn't tolerate it. Yeah, It, it, it didn't happen because I, they and their chiefs of staff didn't allow it to happen. So I, I want to ask you, and, and, and first of all, I just want to say, I agree hundred percent with that point. And I think, you know, it, it, it is a point a little bit about the divisiveness in our society um, where only 50% of America or less trust whoever the commander in chief is at a particular time. And that wasn't necessarily the case with Obama or even with Bush. I think that there was, uh, you know, there was at least a 60 40 split where it was like, okay, I trust the president. Um, and now, you know, since Trump, in 2016, there were people who were like, this president doesn't have enough knowledge. He's not smart. He's not, he doesn't read, you know, all these kinds of things. So they didn't trust the president. And that included people who were in his, uh, his administration. And now you have these people who are like, Biden has lost a step. Some people going as far as to say he's senile or he's old, you know, uh, he can't stay up past eight or whatever you know, we need to be running things. We need to control him. We can't let him say anything, anything he says. And they're afraid, I think, honestly, of the Fox News clips and all of that, which if anything, I think as, uh, you know, a left-wing person, uh, you should actually lean in on that. You know what I mean? Just from a strategic side, um, the same thing that, that Trump did with CNN. It was like, they are fake news. They are horrible. Look at what they put up. You know, I, I think there's a way to work that, but I think, you know, Democrats tiptoe around everything and are scared of everything. So they, you know, they control the president and don't let him be who he is. Um, and so in some ways I kind of agree with what it is that Biden is saying. I kind of agree with that. Like, let me be me. You know, well, yes, this is Jason, who's, he, he, he is the president of the United States. 
He carries the nuclear codes. If his staff right. is not letting him be him, isn't that his responsibility? No, I, I, I think, you know, you make a good point. You make a very strong point. Yes. And what, this is Trump's what, weakness. Trump's so, weakness was personnel. That was, right. And this is one of the great indictments of the Trump presidency is that he was surrounded by people who were actively sabotaging him and didn't do enough to stop that. I mean, and, and, uh, and that was one of the one of the pieces that dragged him down. And, and I say that assessing Trump's presidency is rather successful relative to where we are now, of course. Uh, but um, but yeah, I think that was one of the great faults of his presidency was the personnel he surrounded himself with, you know, not knowing that Jeff Sessions was going to recuse himself, all the all the drama, you know, bringing in John Bolton uh, on and on and on and on. What, what was the difference? And, that, and that's interesting for someone who has hired people for his entire life, for him to be bad at hiring. I think it's kind of like part of his selling point was I'm a business owner. I've run yeah. these kinds of things. And well, that's then his marketing genius was to, was to make his weaknesses strength. Right. No, no, I agree. Um, Leland, what would you say is the biggest difference between, you know, reporting under the Obama administration, then the Trump administration and the current administration? What, what do you think has been like the big change in between those besides the things that we've already mentioned? It's a great question, uh, and I, I think being under the Obama administration and the Biden administration were uh, were similar um, in that, and probably the, the Trump administration similar as well, except it just flipped, right? I, I think that probably CNN and MSNBC did a better job covering Trump, um, and the New York Times did a better job covering Trump than the Wall Street Journal did, and the Wall Street Journal did a better job covering Obama and covering uh, Biden than the Washington Post and New York Times does. Because just naturally, the, the, the journalism should be adversarial. That, that's right. the whole point of it. Um, so, But not mean-spirited, though. I mean, I, I think, you know, no, I, we, I think we cross a line. There, there, there's, no, there's no question about that. And, and I think the, I, if, you, if you watch, I think cable news probably is, you know, farther to the extreme than the newspapers I mentioned. It's why I picked the newspapers right. rather than, than television. But the the big difference, I think, that exists in both the Trump administration and the Biden administration that didn't exist in the Obama administration was just competency. You know, say what you want about the Bush administration and the Obama administration, but there were real adults in charge who were competent. Now, you people could agree or disagree about their policies, but they were pretty good at carrying the policies out. Right. The Trump administration was miserable at carrying their policies out. You know, Trump would say something, it would just never happen. Right. And by the way, the same with the Biden administration. You know, they, I, I, their problem isn't the bad policies. It's just that they don't carry any policy out. They're incompetent at it. You know, they say they're going to overturn Title 42, and then they, they don't. They say mask, the mask mandate must stay, but then the Justice Department takes eight weeks to try and, and overturn and try to appeal it because they realize how politically unpopular it is but they can't articulate a message around it. So it in in the Trump administration was the same way. This isn't a partisan criticism, but nah. the the ability to to get policies done and implement them, I think, have, has fallen off with both administrations. Yeah, you think that probably, that has to? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Vince. I mean, yeah, I was. I'm just trying to think if this is. I'm I'm assessing uh, Leland's remarks because. I'm thinking about in the Trump era, it probably it depended on this the segment, like the type of policy we're talking about. Like, so build the wall didn't succeed. They did they didn't build the wall during the Trump era. Right. Um, you've got repeal you know, and replace. You've that got repeal and replace didn't didn't come to pass. Infrastructure week happened every week, uh, and then of course <laughs> you had 
um, things like, you know, the Abraham Accords come into place, these these bilateral arrangements right. for, for arranging Middle East. It's not to say you're not going to be um, without, it's not to be that you're, you're not without success, right? Yes. But when you are the leader of the free world and you decree things to be, they have to be, or you lose your power as the leader of the free world. Right. You, you, you uh, diminish the value of your currency. Yeah. yeah. That, I, I think that's right. And, 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 and in both of those administrations, the value of their currency has been incredibly devalued. Whereas the Biden administration, the Bush administration, or the Obama administration, the Bush administration, when, when they said things, it happened, whether you liked it or not, it, right. it happened. No, and I'm, I'm wondering what the, what the danger of that is in the United States. And it, it, look, I think, it, you know, as Americans, we should all want the president to succeed, you know, especially when it comes to foreign policy mm-hmm. and the lack of success, I think by both administrations in their foreign policy with noticeable, notable exceptions, the Abraham Accords being one of them um, is, is probably not good for America. Right. Yeah. yeah, I don't know yeah. if I agree that Biden, that Trump was a had lacked success on foreign policy, though. No, um, no with no, with notable with notable exceptions, I think he. Uh, well, yeah, I he, didn't start, didn't I mean, he was I the first president. Wait, wait, he was the first president in a long time not to start any new wars. That was a very consequential distinction on his part. Um, I think that he was wise to pull us out of the Paris Climate Accords. He strengthened NATO and the funding in NATO. In the process, um, and that was that's that's debatable among people who even question the existence of NATO. I I don't think that he has some sort of negative foreign policy record. Um, there were moments where people were critical of him, given the nature of his meetings with strongmen. They thought that that he yeah. was too you know assiduous to people like Putin or Kim Jong Un. Uh, but the reality was that the nuclear weapons test is abated, and there were no annexations by Putin uh, during that time frame. So I, I just think that, you know, in the interest, I just, from where I'm sitting, I, I don't, I think Biden, Trump had a, a superior foreign policy record to where Joe Biden is now, which has been kind of a, kind of a lurching through disaster after disaster, unfortunately. It's a hard, hard, to, hard to argue with from my perspective. Jason may have a difference. I, I, to, to your, I, I should, I should rephrase that. An American president who is successful and strong on foreign policy is a good thing for all of us, which, by the way, used not to be a partisan issue, right? Right. Foreign policy was the one thing that that stopped at the water's edge, so to speak, and that that Republicans and Democrats generally agreed on. Uh, that's that's really changed, which is really an interesting and I think sad development for, for is, America. Is, so I know Jason wants to jump in. So I'll add one quick thing. I don't know if it's sad. I think Americans are paying more attention now to what we're doing on a foreign policy level than they were before. Mm-hmm. Like if you ask the average person about our involvement in Syria and Libya, people might be surprised that we were involved in places like that. What we're what we're finding now is the American people are watching eyes wide open. Wait a second. You just passed 40 billion dollars in aid to Ukraine. We're sending tremendous numbers of weapons over there. We don't have a necessarily a clear end state in mind. Uh, and yet we are, as you mentioned earlier, undergoing a bunch of existential problems within the United States itself. And it feels like there's a lot of negligence towards those issues coming out of Washington. And again, I don't think this this should not be a partisan point. I think being attentive to the excesses of our foreign policy adventurism is a good trend in the United States. Go ahead, Jason. I know you probably yeah, no, I, I, I would, um, 
you know, I mean, of course, there, there are things that I would I would disagree with in terms of, you know, I, I think some of those things that maybe aren't policy, uh, you know, as, as stated policy, but but weakening our relationships with our allies and, and you know, not having general knowledge of uh, the lay of the land in terms of, you know, uh, our our geopolitical landscape. I, I think that some of that is, you know, a problem that I think, you know, Biden and, and everyone, you know, people are, I feel like are looking and, and I'm not a pro Biden guy. I didn't vote for Biden, but outside, well, I voted for Biden in the, in the general, but I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't vote for him. It's brave of you to admit that. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, no, I, but he wasn't, he wasn't the guy I was looking for. Honestly, it was, a, it was a vote against Trump. You know, and I've talked to a lot of people in in the State Department and a lot of them would come to work and they'd be like, what are we doing? Like, what is the direction? You know what I mean? We're not actually, you know, it's just it's just we're working off this guy's gut. You know what I mean? Like that, I think, is a is a problem because you don't have a policy. You can't call it foreign policy if you don't have a policy. Um, but at, at any rate, and, you know, uh, we can talk about, of course, uh, the things going on with Ukraine and 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 though there was not an active annexation, you know, um, some of the things in terms of of the aid given to Ukraine and the ability to defend itself, we could have that long conversation. I have a question, and it's kind of a personal one for Leland. And Leland, that is, you know, I, I think I saw that your sister is a doctor. Right or a scientist? Well, of some she, sort? she 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 is she is the doctor. She is the doctor in the way you are a doctor as well. She's a she she's a she's a professor of data science. So okay. she has a PhD in statistics. Okay, so uh, are you kind of like the failure in, uh, amongst <laughs> the uh, the Vitter children uh, or, because she's so much more successful or uh, and smarter? Well, and, and I, you and you and you don't and you don't even know how great my mom's dog is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, like I'm, I'm all the way. I'm, I'm, I'm below the dog. Okay. Uh, in children, uh, in children hierarchy. So yes, this, this is, this is, this is true. Um, Liberty, Liberty, my younger sister, who's, uh, who's quite successful, and uh, you, you guys should have her on next to, uh, to help save the world. Absolutely. Sounds yeah. Like no. Absolutely. Idea. I think I follow her on Twitter. And uh, she always or she's she's a, she's a little more active than than I am. She, she's one of these people, though, and this is what I think is is so horrible to argue with her. Is she went to MIT and she has a PhD in statistics. So whenever she argues with you, she throws out all these statistics, <laughs> half of which you know were made up. But then, she, well, I went to MIT. How can you argue with me? Right, right, I love that. right. You know, yeah. So. Uh, yeah. she, she occasionally makes it on the show. It's, it's, it's a, it's a lot of fun, but uh, this is, this has been great guys. I'm, I, I think the the world is safe at least for the next 24 hours, maybe 36 yeah. hours. Yeah. yeah. I, I give it 24 minutes, but you know, hey, you know, at least, at least. Yeah. But we, we, we thank you Leland. And I want to say you have some of the best hair on television. Um, <laughs> and we are, we, we love being on your show. We're glad that you were able to make it on our show. I, 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 again, will take credit because I was like, we need to bring Leland Vitter on the show. You know, and Vince was like, really? Sure. <laughs> like I said, last time we were on with Leland together, he straight up invited himself on the program. And we said, yeah. OK, let's do it. <laughs> he wanted to, he wanted to, 
He wanted to get in front of our thousand yeah. followers. Hey, you know what? News, news, news Nation is a scrappy startup. Okay. You know, I'm sure you guys get pitched all the time by the big PR firms to get the big anchors on the show. Okay. Right. And they, you know, you got to turn them all down. List. Right. And there's only one, <laughs> right. Like, we're a scrappy little startup. You got to go for it. We had to get you on the air on record saying I could come on. It was the only way to get myself booked. Amazing. All right. Amazing. Absolutely. All right. All right thank Thanks, you, guys. Thank you, Leland. Take it easy. We'll talk soon.